Jews and Jewish identity, which I think is going to be available for purchase and signing, I'm sure, uh, after the event. Is that right? Is there somebody here from the... Is that right? Have you got some copies? I have copies. Okay. Special price. Okay. Special price. Great price. Uh, so I'm grateful to publishers for coming along with that. I'm grateful to not only to Alan Montefiore himself, who's going to participate in this discussion, but also to co-conspirators Sarah Richmond, who will speak after Alan, and uh, Stephen Mulhall at the end there, who will speak third. And when they've each had a go at saying something, um, Alan will come back into some period of self-defence, after which uh, a further look conversation can get going amongst the panel and after about an hour we'll call that time and give you guys an opportunity to uh, ask questions of your own. So I'm uh, Simon Ledley, I'm going to chair this discussion and I'm um, Director of the Forum for European Philosophy and that means that standing here at the moment I am, to use the metaphor that guides the beginning of Alan's book, I'm wearing a hat. Um, I'm wearing this hat I'm especially delighted to uh, welcome Alan to this event tonight because he is, of course, president of the Forum for European Philosophy. It's very much a forum event in that sense. And the metaphor of hats, as I say, is uh, one that leads off the discussion of thinking about the connections between identity, facts about one's identity, and obligations one has, things I ought to do for example, when I'm wearing a certain hat, I should introduce my guests politely, and at the end, I should thank them graciously, as indeed you should as an audience, which is as such also wearing a hat. Well, one thing we might want to ask is uh, whether there is a hat one can wear such that there's no gap whatsoever between oneself and one's words with that hat on. Um, Maybe we'll find out a bit about that. Maybe it's something like speaking as a friend. Anyway, these are all friends, and uh, I'm sure you'll be all a bit welcome. First, then, it'll be Alamos Fury who can say something in his own words about his own words. <laughs> and then Sarah and then Steve. Okay, we'll leave it to them. Yeah, can I just check that this is working well enough? Can you hear me? Well, I, I think I ought to explain really um, something about the nature of this book and how it came about. Uh, it's uh, because it's a quasi-autobiographical book in the sense that it grew out of what was an absurdly over-ambitious project to go back and look at uh, what I thought and what I'd written about what I thought over various range of topics over the years and to see what, simply whether I still agreed with myself or not. And if not, why not? But then uh, Akil Bilgrami, who's, uh, in whose series this book appears, and who's in, uh, uh, yet another of my friends and, and former students from Oxford, uh, uh, now a senior professor at Columbia, said to me quite sensibly that this is an over-ambitious project, which is far too sprawling, and anyway you'll never finish it. Uh, why don't you simply restrict yourself uh, to this particular theme? And so that's what I did. The theme I chose out of all the other themes I've been interested in, uh, that's to say the relationship between facts and values, uh, was one which had uh, always um, uh, bothered me uh, in the f following sense. Uh, if you think about it, uh, facts 
uh, are something you can't really make to your own wish. You can't choose what the facts will be. Anybody who thinks they can make the facts to be what they would wish them to be is uh, dangerously paranoid uh, and is not likely to be very successful in their enterprises in life. Uh, if values have the status of facts or if, they, or if value judgments are in some sense rather logically bound to the facts, if in other words value judgments can be derived from statements of fact, uh, then uh, individuals have to accept uh, values including their obligations and responsibilities as something given to them which they can't choose make otherwise than what, they would, uh, than what they are confronted with. They can't make them what they would like them to be. And because uh, this had been a problem, as I tried to explain in the book, for, uh, in my own experience, not from just my own philosophical experience, but my own personal experience, this was a problem, let's say the problem of the relationship between facts and values, which was one which had always concerned me, uh, both uh, personally and as a philosopher. And I should say, in passing quickly in brackets, that one of the many sub-themes of the book is the way in which philosophical thinking can be very relevant or indeed grow out of problems which face you in your non-philosophical, in inverted commas, real, whatever real means, real life. Now, I had the idea, when well, in my own case indeed, uh, the connection between, the alleged connection between values and facts such that one had to accept certain values as implied in the facts uh, was one which was bound up with the concept of identity. Uh, so my starting thought for this particular ex exploration for this book was to see how far the concept or concepts of identity might function as a sort of logical bridge between uh, facts and values in which facts and values would be so bound together that you couldn't really accept the facts without accepting your values or your obligations. And the example which I took is one I obviously knew best out of my own personal experience uh, was that of Jewish identity. And again, the point about taking my own personal experience was not just that I knew it best, but as I say, it also illustrates the theme that um, there's a, of the relevance of philosophical worries to worries which arise out of personal experience. <coughs> so uh, what I do in the book is to look quite a lot at the question as to how far one's identity is within one's own control. There is indeed a chapter on, in the case of Jewish identity, as to how far it makes sense to think of oneself choosing one's own identity. Uh, choosing, and in that particular case, there are problems about whether you choose a Jewish identity or whether you choose not to have a Jewish identity. And the idea, again, which I try and explore to some extent, is that uh, the way people think about this will depend very much on the way in which the whole, let's say, conceptual world is built. If, you, if you've learned in thinking about matters of value and responsibilities, if you've learned this in a context of, let's say, liberal individualism, you're likely to have a, way, a set of concepts which work as to give you the fundamental thought that in the last resort, your values are dependent on yourself. You are responsible for your own value stance. But of course, if you come from a more traditional background, 
Uh, this is not at all the idea you'll be uh, grow into or be brought up with, where you'll be brought up with the idea, in one version or another, that your values are given to you with, say, your role in the family, your role in society, or there are a whole number of other roles. So that one of the, again, important, I think, important ideas which I try and explore in the book is uh, the kind of misunderstandings that can arise between people who work within these very different conceptual perspectives. The perspective of uh, individual responsibility, a sort of, as Descartes, if any of you know Descartes' work on moral philosophy, and I remember Stephen once, believe it or not, if you remember this, this Stephen, within one week when he was an undergraduate, he produced an essay based on all three of Hare's books. Which is no other undergraduate in my experience ever managed to do. I don't know if you remember. I do remember. It doesn't doesn't mean it was any good. No, I, I didn't say that. But it was nevertheless a remarkable exploit. Uh, well, Hare himself said that uh, when he was um, some of the commentators on work, because Hare, of course, insists that very much on the um, impossibility of deriving values from facts and on. The, uh, the, if you like, the, the logical uh, necessity of accepting individual responsibility for your value stands. He was then, people pointed out to him that this was very much a Protestant and a liberal point of view. And there's a lovely passage in one of his words where he says, well, it is, as a matter of fact, true that I'm both a liberal and a Protestant, but, he says, nevertheless, logically, this is a position which is founded in fundamental conceptual considerations. Well, I think, in fact, that some very profound and difficult disagreements between people, misunderstandings between people, can arise because they simply operate out of different conceptual configurations in this area. So the question as to how far you can disentangle yourself from the identity which is uh, the, the outer world regards as yours and which, carry, which they regard as carrying with it certain obligations is very much the theme of the book. Oh, one of the central themes of the book. And that's where the notion of a hat comes in. Because uh, if you think of your identity as a hat, if you, if you are, uh, say, in, a, in some of the, I believe, traditional wealth villages, if you're John the Milk, for example, you're, so you're known as the Milk, or if you are the village doctor, as a doctor you clearly have certain <coughs> obligations. But do you think of yourself in all contexts as the doctor, or can you think of yourself as choosing to make certain important judgments as to what you should or should not do in some circumstances, not on the basis of the role which you occupy, you occupy but on the basis of your considered uh, view of the relevant values. Here, in fact, takes the example of a judge who, uh, as a judge, finds himself obliged to uh, give certain um, ver verdicts in accordance with the law as he understands it, even though he may be in disagreement with the law. But of course, on his analysis, a judge as an individual, and not under his hat as a judge, can as he freely express his disagreement with the law and explain that he would in fact wish to campaign, perhaps to, to change it. But for the time being, as judge, this is the verdict he has to give, because this is the law as he sees it. Now, there's a whole range of values, some of which it seems to me you can uh, freely step into and more or less freely step out of, uh, so a whole range of roles, I should say. And there are other roles in which you can freely step into, say, the role of being a husband or a wife the, when you get married, but where it's not quite so clear as to whether you're free to simply step out of it uh, 
uh, as without going through certain socially um, approved um, rituals or procedures. And other roles, at least from the point of view of some people, which you can never step out of because there are no conditioned roles, at least within some communities. And um, I try and look at these various possibilities. So I think that that probably is a fair introduction to the range of themes in the book. Perhaps I should just add a couple of other themes, just to complicate matters. Uh, it, as I try and discuss these issues of, as I say, it seems to me, genuine living importance, I find myself pushed from one kind of uh, one area of philosophy to another. So one of the themes is uh, the interconnectedness of so many different uh, problem areas in philosophy. And I think it is a feature of contemporary philosophy that people tend so much to specialize in given areas that there's a danger of, lo of people losing sight of the way in which they are interconnected. And f just a final thought, it does also seem to me that uh, for many, many people uh, they, who, for whom the notion of philosophy may seem to be rather scary, uh, but once they try and think systematically about the problems that they uh, are confronting, they may find themselves already engaging in philosophy without knowing that they are doing so. If you tell them that's what they're doing, you may scare them off and they may start trying to stop trying to think systematically. But now uh, uh, it's a great, great pleasure for me to be found myself discussing this with old friends and uh, with whom I've discussed it in many past tutorials indeed. <laughs> uh, and I think it is up to them now to take, um, well not revenge as I suggested, <laughs> but, but at any rate it's their, t it's their turn to now give me a tutorial on what, what I've been trying to do. So Thank Sarah, you. it's your turn to do this. Thank you. Um, can Okay. Okay, can people hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, yes, so one of the hats I'm wearing here is as a former student of Alan's, both as an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, and perhaps another hat that I'm wearing is as a philosopher teaching in London University. So um, it wasn't a difficult journey for me tonight at all. And I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Simon said that we could talk about um, facts and values quite broadly. But he didn't insist that we talk about facts and values quite broadly. And once I'd um, finished reading Alan's book, I felt that actually what I wanted to do was respond less broadly to quite a few of the points that he raises in it. So that's what I'd like to talk about just briefly. As Alan's explained, the book uses the example of Jewish identity to illustrate aspects of the concept of identity more generally, but also more personally to show the particular significance that the question of identity had for him in particular as a member of the well-known Montefiore family, many of whose members, through several generations, had made such an important contribution to British public life. And one of the things that the book does so well, and Alan's just mentioned this too, is to show how, although we may wish to think of ourselves as the authors of our own identities, in fact, the establishment of a social identity for ourselves depends vitally on the cooperation of other people. And a consequence of this is that sometimes, whether we like it or not, 
we'll find ourselves associated with an identity that is far more the creation of these other people than of ours. And these imposed identities don't always help us flourish, and indeed, they may be quite at odds with our own sense of who we are. There's an excellent illustration of this taken from Alan's childhood in his book, so I'd just like to quote this marvellous paragraph. Having been brought up in a context of essentially reformed Judaism at home, but having been to schools with only a mere scattering of other Jewish boys until the age of about 14, I remember very well my perplexity on then becoming a junior member of Polak's, the Jewish house at Clifton, an otherwise fairly typical English public school, and there finding myself in close daily contact for a first time in my life with a number of boys from clearly orthodox families, many of whose commitments and practices, such as the conscientious wearing of kippot or the getting up early in order to lay tefillin, were totally strange to me. Now, one of the nice things that this anecdote illustrates, as well as the point about one's not always being, to author one's, being able to author one's own identity, is that it's very problematic to speak about a Jewish identity at all. And actually, it's always said that wherever there are two Jews, there are three points of view. I think... Um, you know, this is a problematic issue, and the story illustrates it very well. It also, I thought, illustrated how much attitudes towards diversity have changed since the time Alan's writing about, as well as attitudes towards children. So I can't imagine now, I might be wrong, and if so, I'd like to be corrected, but it seems to me unlikely that today there's any public school or state school in this country that organises things by way of having a Jewish house. And even if they had, it's impossible to imagine that the school would simply assign pupils to it without discussing it either with them or with their parents. So I think there's far more of an expectation now than there was when Alan was 14 that children of many different backgrounds should be collectively accommodated even while their individual identities ought to be respected. A less amusing example of an identity imposed by others that Alan also mentions is, of course, the classifications used by the Nazis, including the yellow star with the word Yuda that all Jews over the age of six were required to wear, according to a decree in 1941. And, of course, in the concentration camps themselves, there was a whole system of enforced insignia to classify the prisoners, including the well-known red triangles for communists and pink triangles for homosexuals. And if anyone wants to go to Wikipedia, there's a chilling chart um, there that explains all the insignia and all the variations on the insignia that were used to classify the prisoners. I'll come back to this in a minute. Anyway, the point is that our social identity is not always under our control to the extent that we might like. Another point worth, point worth mentioning that Alan actually doesn't discuss quite so much is that we don't always know what our identity is for other people. And at this point, I'd like to say something about what constituted Alan's identity for me when I encountered him as a student. <laughs> as I said, I was taught by Alan as an undergraduate when I was studying for my degree in philosophy and French at Oxford. 
I had tutorials with him at Balliol to prepare for a finals paper called Continental Philosophy Since Kant that I was taking. And then, after I'd been away for a year doing an MA at Warwick, when I returned to Oxford to start my PhD, Alan was my supervisor. As far as I was concerned in my early 20s, Alan's identity had nothing to do with his family or his Jewishness, and in fact it didn't even have much to do with his own philosophical work. The salient fact about him was that if he wanted to do graduate work on virtually any topic in recent European philosophy, the only person you could do this with in the entire sub-faculty of philosophy in Oxford was Alan. <laughs> so when I mentioned my plans to any member of the academic world that I was considering doing research in French philosophy, the response was invariably, that would be Alan. <laughs> and then, once I'd started doing my PhD on the work of Jacques Derrida, whom it turned out that Alan knew, whenever I told any other philosophy graduate student what I was working on, they would reply, that would be Alan. <laughs> so Alan single-handedly made it possible for continental philosophy to be available to several generations of graduate students in Oxford, some of whom, of course, including myself, went on to teach it in other universities. And I think a very important part of his identity is that he's been a major force in opening up philosophy in this country to European thinking and in making the discipline as taught in this country far more diverse and more interesting than it would otherwise have been. Okay, returning now to Alan's sense of his identity. A key paragraph in the book tells us how this issue came to concern him. This is what he writes. In my own case, the issue was whether the facts of my identity, as the elder son of my own particular Jewish family, together with those not so easily determinate but still relatively indisputable facts concerning the generally accepted nature of the relevant family and community traditions, were so tightly tied to a certain set of positive and negative obligations as to render escape from them virtually unthinkable. So unthinkable as to make it impossible for me to acknowledge my own evident family and Jewish identity without thereby recognizing it as equally evident that these obligations were truly incumbent upon me. And that's a very powerful passage Alan doesn't actually spell out what the content of these obligations were, and it's something I was very curious about, and I was hoping that perhaps we could hear a little bit more about. But what does come through is the huge difficulty that there was in this disagreement, if it could be called that, between Alan and his family, about the apparent necessity of acknowledging these inescapable obligations. And the situation that Alan describes reminded me very much of an extremely famous paper written by Bernard Williams in 1980 called Internal and External Reasons. Now, Alan, of course, knew Bernard Williams, and in his book he refers to Williams's writings several times. But it's interesting that he doesn't talk about this particular paper, which struck me as perhaps the most apposite of all. Williams in that paper famously argued that there were no such things as what philosophers call external reasons. And he illustrated this with a very different example 
not a Jewish person and nothing to do with religion, the fictional case of Owen Wingrave, a character in an opera by Benjamin Britten, which was based in turn on a short story by Henry James. Now, as um, Williams retells it, Owen Wingrave comes from a family of soldiers with strong military traditions, and these traditions require of him, too, that he become a soldier. But Owen is not the soldier type, and he absolutely hates the idea of army life. He doesn't want to join the army, and to use Williams's phrase, there is no sound deliberative route available to him from his motivational set, including the things he does want to do, which could lead him to this decision to join the army. Williams imagines Owen Wingrave's family perfectly aware of this, and yet nonetheless claiming that there is a reason for him to join the army. And Williams suggested in that famous article that this statement was quite unintelligible. What on earth could it mean in this situation to say that Owen had a reason to join the army? Now, I'll stop in a minute, but I just, again, my feeling is that whatever we might want to say about external reasons in general, I think most people in both Alan's case and Owen Wingrave's case are inclined to agree with the younger generation. It does look as if in these cases the older generation were simply not justified in saying anything more than that they wanted their son to live in a particular way. What Alan captures so well in his book, something that also comes out in Williams's example, is the absence of common ground between these perspectives. By using the normative language of obligation, the older generation are repeating something which to the ears of the younger generation is senseless. But I'm also wondering if there might be a sort of historical and generational shift here. I think it is fairly unintelligible to most people living in Western liberal societies today that there are things that they ought to be doing as a matter of fact in virtue of being a member of the particular family into which they happen to be born. But as Alan points out, that might be a culturally relative fact. So I'll stop there because I've used up my time. Thank you very much. I'll sit back. <clears throat> okay, so is this audible too? Yeah. Good. Okay. It was a very nostalgic experience reading this book for me because so many of the themes that are central to it were also central to Alan's teaching during the years when I was an undergraduate student at Balliol and he was one of the philosophy tutors there. So there was a certain kind of autobiographical aspect to the whole business of preparing for this for this discussion. What I wanted to do was to pick up some points, maybe under three broad headings. Um, one has to do with the way Alan uses some arguments that have a particularly Wittgensteinian flavor to them, although in many ways they can be articulated without particularly referring to the investigations. The second set of points have to do with the chapter in which 
a discussion of Jewish identity is connected with a certain sort of use of Kant and Kantian ideas of the human condition as such as involving a certain kind of tension between or a pull towards particularity on the one hand and universality on the other. And then finally, a set of ideas that are very hard to organize, or at least I found very hard to organize in my own mind, but have to do really with the autobiographical or reflexive cast of the way this book works in its arguments. I mean, there's a way of understanding how the various bits fit together which make it very straightforward and I think a great deal less interesting than it really is. And I want to try and suggest that the pieces kind of turn back on one another in much more complicated and much more interesting ways. And I was wondering how far Alan would like to push those those possibilities. So just quickly, the, the points about Wittgenstein, they kind of matter to me just because Wittgenstein matters to me. Um, Alan uses the private language argument um, in a very familiar way in one context and a very unfamiliar way, at least to me, in another context. The familiar way is, is designed to show that part of becoming a competent language user and hence to some extent a competent thinker depends upon one's, as it were, entering into a community within which the norms governing one's discourse are encountered as, as it were, given aspects of the environment, something that has to be accepted if one's going to become a fully-fledged member of that linguistic community. That way of reading the argument is familiar, and it also gives you an idea of normative objectivity, one might say, a sense in which the evaluative or the normative, a notion of rightness or wrongness, in this case a linguistic or conceptual notion of rightness or wrongness, is bound, as it were, insofar as one is joining a linguistic community, to present itself to one in the kind of way that facts do, things that have to be accepted, that can't be altered simply by virtue of your desire or wish that they be otherwise. But before that more familiar version of the argument comes out in the book, right at the beginning when Alan is articulating as uncontroversially as possible the notion of the factual with which one might want to contrast the evaluative, he also uses the same argument, the private language argument, as a way of showing that a notion of the factual is equally fundamental a requirement of membership of a linguistic community and hence access to the capacity for reflective thought. So that Alan sees a way of getting out of this argument, not something that's fundamentally normative, but something which at least initially in terms of this opposition between fact and value falls more on the side of the factual. And that's a very unusual way of using the private language argument in my experience. So I wanted to ask Alan whether that was an accurate characterization of what's going on, and if so, how significant he sees that unorthodox way of using Wittgenstein. That's a way in which Wittgenstein appears that I found intriguing. There's a way in which Wittgenstein, or at least Wittgensteinian philosophy, doesn't appear that I found equally intriguing, which is this. I mean, it's now very familiar in moral philosophy for, and it's, it, it's a line of argument associated not with, just with Bernard Williams, who was never a particularly Wittgensteinian uh, philosopher, but also with people like John McDowell, where the issue of the relationship between fact and value and the doctrine that these aspects of one's thinking or judgment can, at least in principle, always analytically be separated out, that doctrine is attacked by people like McDowell and Williams on the grounds that there is a very familiar range of concepts 
that we use in our ethical thought that they call thick ethical concepts. A thin ethical concept is something like the right or the good. It's very abstract. Thick ethical concepts are things like courage, dishonesty, mendacity, shallowness, and so on. And the argument that philosophers like McDowell or Williams make is not just that, as it were, in order to grasp the correct use of such concepts, one has to, as it were, inhabit the practice of employing the concepts and thus thereby to inhabit a particular form of life, a particular way of configuring the world, as Alan puts it in the book, but also that it simply isn't possible to separate out within that range of concepts what one might call a, an abstract intellectual recognition of the criteria for their correct application, the circumstances which would justify your applying them, from an understanding of what the point, the evaluative point of the conceptual structure as a whole might be. Now that is a, a use of Wittgenstein in this context, a use that has a direct bearing on the legitimacy of the idea of separating the factual and the evaluative in an ethical context, that Wittgenstein would, as it were, be very happily used, and yet Alan doesn't look at that at all. It may simply be that you know one can't include everything in a single book, but I was as interested in that absence of the Wittgensteinian idea as I was in the presence of a, a relatively unorthodox one. So much for the first set of questions. The second had to do with religion. Um, Alan gives a fascinating um, summary of the Kantian vision of the human condition, in which what it is to be human is a matter of being simultaneously committed to, embedded in the particular, the concrete, the spatio-temporal, the bodily, and on the other hand, constitutively related to the universal, the realm of reason, both theoretical and practical. And he also, he, he calls that, as it were, the peculiarity of the human condition. And then he says the peculiar peculiarity of Judaism and Jewish identity is that it has an extremely, well, I'm not quite sure what the right adjective is, but certainly a very strong, a very constitutive sense of itself as being on the one hand particular, essentially related to a particular social or ethnic group, but on the other hand, with a message, as it were, that is universal that claims to articulate the truth about for humanity as such. What, what, what would interest me as a way of developing that suggestion is what, as it were, is distinctively peculiar about the Jewish way of living out that tension between the concrete, the particular on the one hand, and the universal on the other, in relation to, as it were, the two other major examples of monotheistic religion. I'm not in a position to talk about Islam, although some people in the audience may be. I am in a position to say, to talk about Christianity, or at least certain traditions of Christianity with which I'm familiar. And I was wondering, in effect, whether there was an essential or an important difference between the way in which Jewishness relates the particular and the universal in its understanding of at least the religious dimension of that group identity and the way Christianity does. Because on the one hand, at least within certain traditions of Western Christianity, Christianity itself looks like one of the most intense 
possible expressions of a sense of the paradoxical relationship between the particular and the universal at the level of doctrine. You just have to think about the doctrine of the incarnation, right? where the divine becomes particular. <coughs> However, that's not really the dimension that, that Alan is talking about when he talks about Jewishness or Judaism as, as a religion. He's, he's talking about particularity there with respect to the idea of some indissoluble or indismissible relation to a particular social or ethnic group. And of course, part of what Christianity claims about itself is that, as it were, one doesn't need a particular ethnic identity in order to be a Christian. On the other hand, um, Christianity comes out of Judaism. It has to understand itself as having at least historically, and not just historically, a relationship to precisely that particular ethnic group, that form of group identity. And secondly, what about membership of a church? Would membership of a church constitute the kind of social identity that Judaism also exemplifies? What, what would the differences be between a notion of group identity that's essentially transnational, but nevertheless is essentially social? It is a matter of one's sense of oneself being derivative upon membership of a group. You know? What kind of a difference to one's sense of religion and the significance of religion does it make if one thinks about that group membership as involving a particular people and now in contemporary circumstances a particular nation state in some way as opposed to a religious tradition in which the church is being thought of as the primary vehicle and that's not associated with a single nation or state but it is nonetheless a highly concrete and specific social group so that's one, another set of issues we might explore but just to finish off I wanted to raise some points that I was suggesting fall under a kind of reflexivity um, heading a sense in which the structure of the book seems to be much more complex and in interesting ways than it might at first appear to be. I mean, one way of reading the relationship between, as it were, the discussion of facts and values and the discussion of identity is to think about, about it like this. There's a very, very general issue, which is what, at the most abstract level, is the relationship between fact and value. In order to get clear on that, one should look at a particular instance or case where that general relationship is at issue and personal identity looks like a good example of that. And because the philosopher who's engaged in this enterprise, because certain things are biographically true of that philosopher, we make the focus even more specific and we look at the relationship between a certain kind of group identity and a certain kind of individual identity. So that what's happening, as it were, is that the, the argument is getting more and more specific and focused as we go along. Yeah? But it can't be quite that simple, it seems to me. I mean, first of all, because one of the kind of early claims that, that Alan makes is that whether or not one believes that there is a difference between fact and value is itself constitutive of a certain kind of identity. Right? It's not that, as it were, personal identity is just one of the areas within which this general issue rears its head. It's actually partly constitutive of a culturally, socially, politically, morally specific form of identity. 
the identity of liberalism or liberal Protestantism, as Dick Hare was often described as exemplifying, particularly by people like Iris Murdoch. Right? She was particularly obsessed by the fact that this supposedly neutral doctrine about the analyticity of concepts was in fact part of a very concrete and substantial political and ethical enterprise. So the issue of identity and its relationship to fact and value isn't just a more specific instance of the general point. Right? Part of what's going on here is that it turns out that the very idea that there is some general pervasive difference between the factual and the evaluative is itself constitutive of a particular cultural, political configuring of the world and hence constitutive of a certain kind of individual identity. So that's one complication. A second complication, I suppose, is that what looks like an even more specific version of the particular case of personal identity, namely Alan's particular circumstances, is rather more complicated than that. Right? Because one way of putting the issues that he presents in a fundamentally autobiographical manner are that what one has here is not, as it were, a conflict between a particular kind of group identity, a place in a Jewish community in Britain at a certain period, and worries about the autonomy of the individual. What one actually has is a conflict between two different social roles. Right? I mean, the, 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 the dust jacket of the book says, as a young lecturer in philosophy and the eldest son of a prominent Jewish family. Right? Now, what that suggests is that what Alan is kind of offering autobiographically is a conflict between social roles. Right? That part of what's being, um, part of what's driving the argument, the conflict, the kind of incomprehension that he describes autobiographically about those who think that, that he has certain obligations by virtue of his identity as a member of the Jewish community, a Jewish family in a Jewish community. Part of what's, as it were, coming into conflict with that is not just some abstract intellectual capacity or recognition of a, the political significance and the moral significance of a distinction between fact and value, but something that's, as it were, non-accidentally related to the project of being a philosopher. Right? That, because on the one hand, you know, kind of traditionally, being a philosopher means dedicating yourself to the universal. Right, to the realm of the universal, reason, you know, pure reason, to use the Kantian phrase. On the other hand, precisely because being a philosopher is itself a social role and hence a way of understanding your own identity as an individual, it too is going to be socially, culturally, politically specific. And this relates to the point that Sarah was making about the kind of philosopher that Alan was. In Alan's case, his way of inhabiting the role of being a philosopher is as one in which it doesn't represent the universal in relation to forms of particularity within which it's kind of inherently or necessarily in conflict. Rather, it's a way of, it involves a recognition that what it is to be a philosopher is the kind of thing philosophers disagree about. There are different ways of inhabiting that role. Yeah? 
One way, very familiar in Oxford, 1950s, 1960s, is one where you know particularity gets taken right out of the picture, <laughs> including personal particularity. Right? You don't function as a philosopher by drawing on your own personal experience. You certainly don't write philosophy autobiographically. Right? You think about the concepts. Right? What Alan is offering, in effect, is a different way of inhabiting that social role, one in which part of being a philosopher is recognizing both particularity and universality. And it's a question, I think, that the book raises, how far that depends upon identifying with a certain set of traditions of philosophical endeavor, and how far it depends upon rejecting certain others. In other words, could you get this kind of philosophical endeavor from someone who doesn't, isn't prepared to take seriously certain French and German traditions in post-Kantian philosophy? Just one last point. I'm, I know I'm talking too long, um, and then I'll shut up. What makes a problem a philosophical problem? Right? What, one of the interesting aspects of Alan's um, book, one of its subtexts, is that there's a, a fundamental continuity between the academic activity that we call philosophy and a kind of reflective engagement with the kinds of problems one finds in one's life. But then, as it were, it might be significant that Alan's problem took a very particular form. And it wasn't just that there was a personal conflict between different aspects of his identity, his relation to certain kinds of groups or social roles. What he puts a great deal of emphasis on in his characterization of that situation was that there was a certain kind of mutual incomprehension involved. It wasn't just that people disagreed about whether or not he was obliged to do certain things, to take on certain responsibilities, or whether it was a matter of his own individual choice. Each party to, this, to the dispute on Alan's account of it couldn't understand why the other party couldn't see the incoherence of the position they were adopting. So there's a very specific structure to that situation. And if that's, as it were, meant to be exemplary of the way in which philosophical problems take off, then it has to be more specific. You need a more concrete story than simply, I've hit a problem, I'm beginning to reflect on it, and sooner or later I'm going to end up in the domain of philosophical reflection. It's more that, as it were, you have to be pushed into that reflection by a certain kind of incomprehension. Right? Not just that something is difficult, that an issue needs to be resolved, and you can clearly see what the options are, but that there's fun something fundamentally opaque or obscure about the situation in which you find yourself. That the meaningfulness of it, or the intelligibility of it, is at issue and at risk. Yeah. And that would indeed take us back to the Kantian material that Alan uses in the book. That, Alan, that, that Kant again and again finds that philosophical re reflection leads you to a point where all you can do is comprehend the incomprehensibility of things. So that, as it were, there's a kind of exemplification of what a philosophical problem is, or what a motive towards philosophy might be, which suggests that it actually is grounded not just in conflict or difficulty or a complex set of issues, but a, a context in which one, one no longer makes sense to oneself, in which some aspect of one's life or one's understanding of oneself has suddenly become fundamentally obscure, a kind of um, disorientation.
or a loss of intelligibility. And then, as it were, the autobiographical structure of the book becomes even more significant, I think, because, as it were, the motive is, do I still agree with what I thought earlier? You know, can I make sense of my life as a whole? Can I understand why I thought what I did then, how it relates to what I think now, and so on? And, and all these ways, the kind of autobiographical aspect of the project becomes absolutely essential to its nature as a piece of philosophy. I'll stop there. Right, well, Alan, uh, difficult questions your students set you. Um, generous ones, too, I think. So, but I think we should give you uh, some time to, uh, to respond in your own way, and then we'll see where we're up to. What, what do you do about the microphone? I'll move it again. <coughs> I mean, there's a vast range of, of questions, some of which, of course, make me think that I really have to, if ever there comes a second edition of this book, which is dubious, I really have to add a lot of postscripts for certain of the chapters. But let me try and deal as quickly as I can, because, I mean, the, the most, many of these, the most interesting of these questions from both Sarah and Stephen, really would demand an entire session on themselves. But, um, so that I shall be pretty superficial, I fear, in my answers. But just the easiest one to answer, perhaps, of the lot is Sarah's first, first point about Polak's house at Clifton. Uh, the, the facts of the matter were that um, it wasn't a matter of the school deciding which house um, boys went into. Um, it, the idea of Polak's really was that there was a whole range of, of Jewish families who wouldn't send their children to this kind of school at all if there wasn't a special Jewish house. So that, uh, if you like, um, the provision was made through uh, of the provision of this house was made way back actually in the uh, 19th century. It started um, so that certain uh, would-be gradually self-anglicizing Jewish immigrant families might send their children to a typical Jewish school, uh, a typical British school. So, but that's just by the way, I suppose. But it. it, it um, and I'm not going to, I think, go into the question of what were the particular obligations on me which I tended to um, uh, resist at the, at the time of these disagreements. If, if you'll forgive me, Sarah, we might discuss this okay. later. But, um, <laughs> uh, a very interesting point about uh, Bernard Williams's uh, discussion of external reasons. Uh, I, when Bernard says in that piece that there simply uh, aren't any intelligible, there's no intelligible reason why Owen Wingate should um, regard himself as obligated to join the army, I mean it's obvious that in f the way I try and argue in the book is that from some points of view it is obvious that there were such reasons. And this is just the kind of misunderstanding that Stephen has been talking about. It's perfectly true that um, this is a very good example, which I might have discussed. I didn't. Um, perhaps I should do in, the, in a future postscript. But I'm reminded, uh, when you refer to this, of what seems to me Alistair MacIntyre's nostalgia for the kind of conceptual time when, um, if you like, the values were tied to facts and that um, natural law, which um, was uh, natural law in the sense of, not of course of natural scientific law, but natural law of, uh, of obligations, uh, was widely accepted. Uh, 
And one of the things I do briefly discuss in the book is whether it makes sense to suppose that you simply choose your way back to a conceptual framework within which uh, individuals are no longer responsible for, uh, no longer free to choose their own values. If you uh, are fully grown up within and conceptually acclimatized to a framework within which the individual has, carries the ultimate responsibility for his or her identity in that sense, then it doesn't seem to me to make sense to suppose that you can choose your way out of that because you're still individually choosing. Uh, one of the interesting, uh, and this is uh, the two two quotations from the book, which I might might be worth referring to here. There's a very inter interesting passage in Chuck Taylor's uh, book, um, where he says where he says in effect that your identity is determined by where you take your stand. It's his phrase, where you take your stand as a matter of values. And uh, this very notion of where taking your stand is, of course, is a very Protestant Lutheran Lutheran notion although Chuck himself is a committed um, practicing Catholic. But that also reminded me, as I, I think I remember also quoted in the book, of a discussion I once had when I was still teaching at Kiel many, many years ago, with the then, I think it was the abbot of Downside, uh, um, who um, was, of course, committed to the view that the church uh, had a certain kind of moral teaching which uh, committed Catholics were bound, uh, queer Catholics, to accept. But he said that doesn't take away the responsibility of the individual for uh, the individual's value, value stance because the individual chooses whether or not to give what is in effect a blank moral check for the church to fill in as it sees and knows fit. So that uh, I, I think that there's a lot more to be explored in that debate between, uh, uh, let's say, uh, philosopher friends of my generation, that now passing generation, who were worried about uh, the question as to whether there could be external reasons or, or whether one could choose one's way back to a, if you like, a, a much more objective framework or whether this was something which you had to accept as being condemned to freedom of, of a value elevation of your own sort. The Questions, um, other questions, which some of the questions which Stephen raises are immense questions which f fascinate me very much. Uh, I think the question which I really should have discussed much more is that, of course, of conflicts between different roles uh, which one and the same person may find themselves. It is a commonplace today that we have to think in terms of people having multiple identities. Certain aspects of their identity come out in one context and other aspects of their identity may be relevant in other contexts. But of course these identities, these different identities, may well conflict. And this can, can indeed give rise to value conflicts. Uh, I think that one of the things one needs to discuss in, in detail in that, in, that, in that general context is the extent to which there is a sense in which the individual can stand aside from these different from these different roles, can, if you like, doff his different hats, and take his own individual, his or her own individual viewpoint with respect to the uh, varying degrees of competitive importance which his different roles may seem to uh, impose upon him. But I agree, this needs a great deal more discussion. Uh, the, the Wittgenstein um, uh, instances which uh, Stephen uh, discusses 
I don't myself, or at least I find it myself uh, difficult to see uh, quite as clear a distinction between the uh, argument, the two arguments which he rightly says I, I use. It seems to me that, uh, it still seems to me that uh, there is a Wittgensteinian type argument. I don't, of course, claim that Wittgenstein used this argument himself, but there's a Wittgenstein type argument to the effect that the very notion of effect is fundamental to one's uh, intelligible, intelligible use of a language as such. And that the fact might be a fact about how, how other people in your language community uh, use the, the terms, the symbols, the symbols which you are seeking to learn or to use yourself, doesn't make it any, any less of a fact. So it's perfectly true that in the, this is a case where the fact and value do seem to be bound very tightly together if one thinks of the norms of language usage in terms of, of the concept of values. Uh, the other example, though, is uh, the example of the thick ethical concepts. This uh, reminds me actually, I mean, you, you refer to MacDonald, for example, in this context. It actually reminds me very much of the debates which used to go on between Philippa Foote and, and, uh, and Dick Hare. Philippa Foote was probably one of the, she didn't, as far as I remember at that time, use the concept of, th or the terminology of thick. Uh, ethical, concept, thick, ethical concepts, but this is what she was talking about when she was taking examples of what it, of I think concepts such as being rude was one example if I remember rightly, and a lot of her papers at that time were in fact devoted to showing that anybody who uh, sought to understand the language of uh, say rudeness, politeness, courage, a whole range of other such, such examples was committed to a certain sort of uh, value endorsement, like it or not. And of course, Dick Hare and his replies, and I actually remember once chairing a meeting, between, uh, a debate between Dick Hare and Philippa Foote in Oxford, in which they uh, discussed this very issue. And I remember Dick Hare uh, trying to show that, in fact, all these concepts should, could somehow or other be subject to a pulling apart of the different elements, the value element and the um, descriptive or, or factual element. So this is not a new debate uh, and uh, I would certainly accept that it's uh, a discussion of the, uh, this particular e e um, example of conflation of value and, and fact within what seem to be one and the same concepts uh, would be worth uh, adding to the discussion. But I don't myself think there is anything tremendously new in the McDonald discussions about it. Uh, and I do say this will come out in the, what I believe is the forthcoming celebration of Philippa Foote in the uh, um, conference to be held fairly soon in Oxford, isn't this right? Um, a question which I really would like to hear other people's views about is the interplay between group identity and personal identity, um, which Stephen did, referred rather rapidly, in fact. It's clear that, first of all, perhaps I should say what I should have said before, there are many importantly very different senses in which the term identity is used. Um, most significantly, I suppose, the term identity in the, in the context of, say, identity cards or identity papers, where, it is a, where one's identity is a matter of where one stands on a given 
family or national map and uh, one's identity is established by reference to particular facts about where one was born and or if you like what has happened in one's life in terms of natural naturalization to different uh, or, and so on but that's a very different sense of identity what Emily Rorty refers to as essential identity or the kind of identity which Eric Erickson talked about in his um, uh, his highly influential uh, introduction of the notion of identity crisis where one's identity is what is one sees to be most important to being what one is, not so much as who one is, but as what one is, and uh, where again you can run into these tensions between what other people see as being essential to your identity and what you yourself may see as being essential. Now for many people, <coughs> uh, their identity as they see themselves, or indeed as may uh, perhaps in conflict with them, so their own view, um, be seen to be their identity by other people will be in terms of their belonging to one group or another. For example, I, there are many different kinds of examples. Uh, there are examples of people who are born into a, into a certain social class or maybe into a certain social caste in, the, in an Indian case uh, where their identity for all important social purposes, even though they may uh, politically reject the kind of classifications which uh, they find themselves forced them into uh, are given by prevailing social uh, traditions and social forces. But there are also cases where people's identity uh, as they see it themselves is say, and I just take one example, bound up with a particular political party. For example, there are people whose identity is very much seen by themselves as being that of say old Labour or new Labour or the Communist Party. But then party, parties go through different, uh, various forms of change. And then there's the question, so when does the identity of the party change out of all recognition so that it is no longer, quote, the same party? Though it may be perhaps uh, sailing under false pretenses by claiming to bear the same name. Now what happens to people who's, uh, who stake their identity on being members of a party whose own identity is called into question by its internal developments. And this is a, the a whole question of the interplay between the identity of the groups to which people see themselves or are seen by others as belonging and their own personal identities is one which I think I should have thought about a great deal more and I would hope if ever I get the opportunity to think about again and about which I would like to hear other people's views a great deal more. And finally, what, um, not finally in terms of, of course, of the questions raised, but finally in terms of the time I can decently take up. Um, <coughs> I suppose that uh, when I, it's, you say that I didn't seem to have a very clear philosophical identity other than being the person to whom all the odd cases were, were, were sent <laughs> in, in, in Oxford. So it was true, I was sent very odd cases. I mean, the view wasn't, it wasn't just um, I was about the only person who had any interest in contemporary French philosophy at the time, or perhaps by association beyond French, German and Italian. And that was already a pretty strange extension. But when people came and were accepted by the philosophy sub-faculty, not by the subcommittee of the philosophy sub-faculty, of which I was not a member, 
and then they were accepted to do things for which they couldn't find any other supervisor, there was a tendency to say, oh, well, this is very old, send it to Monteferri. And so I think I found myself probably with more graduate students than most other supervisors. Not because uh, they all flocked to me because I was such a, a, a good supervisor, but it was because I was known as the sort of the, the waste paper basket, I suppose, <laughs> for, for odd cases. You know, I have, I have a letter from you when I asked to be supervised by you, I think you said something like, I think it falls on me <laughs> to take you on. Well, uh, that's probably what I felt, not just in your case, Simon, but in, <laughs> in other cases, and I certainly, uh, well, I could, that, that's, I could lead into a whole series of other anecdotes. But what I do think is that um, there is a link between the question of what pushes one into philosophy in one's ordinary life and the, my own experience of teaching philosophy to first year students to get them philosophically thinking was an, I found the best way of doing this was not to sort of sit them down in front of some text which would seem very peculiar to them certainly they didn't come into the university to read philosophy to find themselves trying to, to grapple with say G.E. Moore and Principia Ethica but that's what some of them were forced to do maybe still are forced to do for all I know I found that the best way of getting them thinking philosophically was to try and involve them in thinking more systematically by something, about something which really bugged them. And then one could show at some stage that they were encroaching on areas of philosophy which they could find in established and reputable articles or books or, or classical texts. So I think that that, for me, was very much the kind of connection which worked between my experience, not only my experience in my own life of thinking about particular problems, but of getting uh, um, first-year students to start thinking philosophically. By the time I have to uh, interrupt yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, because I think that is a nice place to, to pause on this. Yeah, you mean I've gone on too long, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> um, I thought I've got all, all jumpy, which means I, I've got this question I'm going to ask, but actually I think my duty is to let other people go first. So um, uh, it's time for the tutorial to get passed over.
Yes, it's perfectly true. I, I don't talk about that. I mean, I suppose that I was feeling I really better get the book finished. Um, uh, but it sort of creeps in under the under the surface, maybe in my brief reference to Alistair MacIntyre, who of course is very much somebody who looks back to Aristotle and the, and the Thomist tradition. Uh, so that it's there waiting to be expanded. I, I think it's the only answer I can sensibly give. Uh, and I could simply plead I couldn't talk about everything. Well, as far as the title of the book is concerned, um, I should tell you that my original choice of title was um, Facts, Value and Brackets, Jewish, close brackets, Identity, because I was wanting to take, as I said, the case of Jewish identity as an illustrative example, which rather rang, ran away with me because it was one which interests me in particular, and also, I suppose, because I have a particular interest in the interplay between the particular and the universal, which is a very Jewish consideration, and about which, if I ever um, spare to live long enough and have enough energy, I'm hoping to actually write a book about the universal interplay of the universal and the particular. But, again, just the actual story of the title, Columbia University Press, with an eye, no doubt, to their New York, predominant New York market, insisted on taking the brackets out of the title. Uh, but, but do you think that the difficulties with the Jewish identity are the same ones that other people do? They're never exactly the same, but there are, there are importantly, there are some important parallels and some important differences, which, uh, in fact, of course, um, Akil Bilgrami, who accepted this the book into his collection, is somebody who's written a great deal about secular, he is a secular Muslim, and he's written a great deal about secular Muslim identity. And if you're interested, he's actually going to be coming and giving a seminar here uh, in about two or three weeks' time on his current work on, on secular Muslim identity. Though he's already published some interesting papers on this. He and I both think that there are parallels and important differences. I mean, it's easy to point to some of the differences. I mean, that. Um, it's clear that the Islam is much closer to being a proselytizing religion than Judaism is. Judaism, well, well perhaps you should say Jewishness rather than Judaism. If Judaism is a term for the religion, you have rather to uh, apply to join the club if you want to become Jewish. I mean, and there's some very interesting questions, and I think really rather. Uh, dreadful questions, well, difficult questions about the way in which the criteria for being Jewish works in terms of the Israeli state. One of the examples I quote in the book, which I take from Shlomo Sand's book on, on the history of the Jewish people, which is a, a questionable book in some ways, but it has this extraordinary story of the girl, I think Moroccan girl, if I remember rightly, by origin, who was not um, herself Jewish by origin, but became uh, convinced Zionist and was got to a state of being regarding both by herself and by her friends as Jewish 
and applied for Israeli citizenship. And she was told that she wouldn't be eligible because she wasn't Jewish. And the only way she could become Jewish was by converting. And she said to the official who was dealing with her, but do you, are you a religious believer? He said, no. But, but my mother, or at any rate my grandmother was, so I'm Jewish all right. But there's no way in which she could become Jewish other than by, by converting. And there are all sorts of uh, stories like this. I mean, there's another very, very recent one of a very prominent and well-known Jewish writer in Israel, now in his 80s, who, uh, who's always been secular. Um, and this is a story which was very recently published in Haaretz, as a matter of fact. And uh, he applied, because uh, his wife was not Jewish by origin. She was American uh, Gentile. And so neither his wife nor his grandchildren were counted as Jewish, and therefore were registered on the, in the ministry, in the, in the Home Office, or the equivalent of the Ministry of the Interior in Israel, as being, I think, American Gentiles or American Christians, whatever, whichever, but certainly not Jewish. And he said, I'm now becoming terrified by these Gentiles in my house. I want to be reclassified as a Gentile since I can't, <laughs> since I can't be classified as a, as, a, uh, as a secular Jew. And this case is still ongoing before the courts. So there are all sorts of problems in that way. There's a very an interesting way in which um, Alan Becker, who has written a, one of the people I, who's already written, a, actually wrote a review of the book before I received my own copies of it, <laughs> uh, uh, in, in a journal called Standpoint. And Alan says that the, the odd thing about Judaism, though I think he may, maybe he should have said Jewishness, is it's not it's not, it's not just a religion, it's not just an, a, a people or a nation. It's somehow or other a bit of both, and the two are intertwined, but they're intertwined in untidy ways. And this is one of the things that's really fascinating in this whole debate. Okay, there, and then down here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Might I suggest a way in which um, the Jewish identity uh, is, is a more, is, poses a more complex problem than that of other identities? And, and I think um, Alan just indicated it that. Being a Jew can be both an ethnicity and a form of religious uh, uh, identity. Now, a Jew can convert to Christianity. A Jew could convert to Islam. A Jew could attempt to join the National Socialist Party. But it wouldn't have prevented them from being rounded up and shipped off to Auschwitz because the criteria that was used by the Nazis for identifying Jews referred to their ethnicity. And, and that was that racial identity goes back in, in the bloodline, which of course Jews themselves acknowledge insofar as the term Jew refers to the territory of Judah, which was one of the 12 tribal territories which the original children of Israel, Israel being the name of that Jacob, the patriarch, chose, meaning he struggled with God after he wrestled with God, after fleeing when he stole the birthright as the younger son from uh, his elder brother Esau, uh, that was given to him by Isaac. Now, the point about it is this, that we have, um, we have this, 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 this um, the Am Yisrael, uh, incidentally, notice Am, people of Israel, Ummah, 
is the we are familiar with from Islam. It's the same root. It just means people. The Jewish people mean descendants of Israel, and that's how the Jews in the ethnic sense. Now, the reason why the religion came was because they were given, and the, and the, and the mission that they were given goes back to the original covenant between Abraham uh, and, and God, when he sat at his tent as a childless man in his 80s, uh, without a, a, a child by his beloved Sarah, and the, and the messenger, the angel came to the tent and said that you are going to have a son, uh, from by Sarah, and Sarah, of course, when she told him laugh, um, which was why Isaac was given the name in Hebrew meaning laughter. But the point is, and you're going to have a son from which a great nation is going to come. Now, I had a mission which addresses Stephen Mulhart's point. Judaism is actually a universal religion, just as Christianity is and Islam, but the religion is such that the people. Um, conceive of themselves as, as, as a nation apart, as a priestly nation. They serve as, as Isaiah puts it, as a light unto other nations. Now the reason why Christianity was, came into being, because it came into being among the Jews, was because they, they um, the, that covenant that was entered into between God and the, the children of Israel was thought to have been fabricated by the Jews and so the whole idea of Christianity, as I understand it, is the new Israel, a new covenant for which you didn't need to have been circumcised, you didn't need to eat kosher food, it was open to everyone. Now, a Christian is someone who regards Jesus of Nazareth as their Lord. That's what it means. I mean, the concept of, of being belonging to a church was simply that We're getting close to doing the whole history of the question. Well, the would you not agree with me, Alan, that, um, <coughs> that, that there are those two dimensions of being a Jew and that sometimes a great, uh, it is a great, profound existential difficulty for someone who's been brought up as a Jew where, and feels that they have an obligation of, of gratitude to their parents who brought them up, that their parents as an Orthodox Jew wish them to remain in the community by not marrying outside of the community, and that's the sort of existential dilemma that so many Jews pose because of that twofold um, conjuncture. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with some of that, but not all of that. Um, there's a, uh, the, the very notion of ethnicity is problematic, of course, today, as, in, as, as is the notion of race. So that um, the terms have changed over the previous uh, decades, and indeed more than decades, where the, sometimes people refer the term people, or the term nation functions differently, and so on. I'm a bit... Uh, ethnicity, well, it has all sorts of problems. Obviously, there are... There, there are well, just for one of the problems is you say that it's, if, it was a, if it was a purely ethnic identity, then you couldn't become Jewish by conversion. You don't change your ethnicity by conversion. You change your membership of a given nation, maybe, or people, or tribe, or society, but not of your race. However, um, that, that said, I completely agree on the complications. And I'm struck, as a matter of fact, in the, this is the second time in the, in the last ten days that I've found myself with the privilege of being asked to discuss this book and there's a certain risk that 
well, I see, say as a philosopher, there's a certain risk that, uh, that the topic of Jewish identity somehow or other takes over and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and crowds out discussion of the relationship between facts and values and the concept of identity and roles in general. It's a concept, it's the problems of Jewish identity is obviously, it took over in the case of my own book, because there are three chapters on Jewish identity in a book which isn't, as I said, uh, which was supposed to be about Jewish in brackets identity. But there you are. Okay, we're down here. Very quickly, uh, just start with the preface. Alan, I chose you. I'm pretty certain that's happening <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I read your book, Philosophy and Personal Relations, when I was in India, applied for the Congress scholarship. I said, I want to work with Alan. Seemed like a person who's talking about things that matter to people's lives. That was my thing. Philosophy for me has to begin from your life. Yeah, that's the quick feedback I want to do. Um, but, so when we do discuss. Um, whether you have reasons to take on some identity transforming project, I think it's not, for me, it isn't a question about reasons. It's about uh, whether um, you can withstand uh, the effect of the emotional turmoil and the, the shattering of the universe that you are comfortable in, and whether or not you can realign yourself in terms of you know, the changes that will bring to your life and uh, by giving up the known and the familiar. I think both philosophy as well as the facing of that question of whether you can or cannot be something other than what you are or what you find yourself comfortable with are very, very deeply connected. Uh, so I would not reduce it to a question about reasons. Uh, it's about a lot. Uh, so, so when we talk about identity, I think the social, political is very important. I'm very uncomfortable with talking about religious ideologies uprooted from and separate from the people who practice them. So the, 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 the particular group of people that I'm interested in, in the work I did on identity with you, Alan, on negotiation of personal identity, is Dalit identity. So Dalit, Dalit becomes a Christian and remains a Dalit. It has nothing to do with the Christian ideology. It's nothing to do with the church as with what is proclaimed. It's to do with the people who practice. Yeah, and I think that some identities just go with go with people no matter where, where they go. And in that sense, there is no choice about whether you can or cannot opt out. But my question I want to ask is actually a pedagogical question to the whole panel. Uh, students come and ask me, they want to work on identity. And all of you work in continental European philosophy. Tell me, which would be your preferred continental philosopher, or European philosopher, <laughs> who you would suggest to read or be acquainted with if you want to work on identity? Well, I find myself always at a loss. You know, certainly I do not want students to be reading only Bernard Williams or whatever as a whole bunch of people. Bernard Williams go great, but which other people? Charles Taylor. Right? Charles Taylor. Well, it's hardly continental philosophy. Charles Taylor. Mm -hmm. yeah? So, so Sorry. I mean, yeah, that's the, that's what they read. So, so the self. We tell them to read that. Mm -hmm. Read But it's a which. Which is in your, your heart is in this is forum for European philosophy to tell me which European philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's um, a philosopher by the name of Clément Rosset who's written about identity and social identity in particular, but I don't know if it's been translated into English, I should say. Paul Ricoeur has, Paul Ricoeur has written Paul Ricoeur has And the whole notion of na narrative identity you get in Ricoeur, of course, so that's yeah. absolutely right, yeah. 
That has been translated. The self is another, yeah. A swa come another for me. Well, Sarah, do you want to have I'm drawing a blank at the moment, no. If if what you mean is personal identity, then there's just all kinds of stuff. I mean, Kierkegaard, um, Heidegger, Sartre, they all have a lot of things to say about that. I suppose Heidegger is the one who most directly connects issues of personal identity to group identity, at least in the context of being in time, in, in very different ways in the later work. But I would have all those. And, and Nietzsche too, actually, from a certain That's point of view. So, so if, if one rephrases it as, as it were, a focus on selfhood or identity in that sense, and in particular if one uses the sort of Emily Rorty focus that Alan dwells on in the second chapter, the idea of a kind of locus of responsibility or accountability, then Sartre, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Hegel. right back to Kierkegaard. Hegel. Hegel. Yeah. Hegel. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. well, we'll get through the reading list later. There's a question. So, yes, you Nationality, what's the third? Ethnic group. Ethnic group. I I honestly can't remember what I said about ethnic group. I know it's a religion. I think I I probably said agnostic or something like that, which it doesn't, which is cheating perhaps a bit. I don't don't know. And nationality, I simply said British, which is, I think, legally true. enough because you need, you need a, a whole library really to, to try to answer that, that one question. I suppose all I can say is that one of the things which seems to me has, has kept people being Jewish is simply external pressures. I mean I certainly, again rather anecdotally, I know people whom I greatly respect and, uh, and, and who were not particularly concerned about Jewish until they came in being Jewish, so they in some clear sense, they might have been identified as such. I mean, born of Jewish parents into Jewish families, but who never cared about themselves as being Jewish until they ran into anti-Semitism. And at that point, they simply said, "Well, I, I am Jewish. Go, you know, just go to hell. I am Jewish. Whatever you like." There's one other anecdote which I repeat from the book, which I think is 
it doesn't really answer your question, but in a, in a way, is a kind of a reverse example. Uh, it's quoted by Annie Vivorka in her massive work on the Holocaust. There's a case uh, of, um, of a French Jew who found himself in the pre-concentration camp or semi-concentration camp of Drancy with a whole lot of other people who had been picked up uh, in France as Jews in this what was in effect a transit camp to the extermination camps. And uh, he f was lying in a bed in not very good con physical condition himself uh, next to some people of Turkish origin. And his companions in, in this sort of misery said, uh, the Turk uh, said, well, we know why we're all here, of course. We're all here because whatever our origins, we're all Jewish. And this man, um, according to Annie Vivorka's story, drew himself up on his bed and said, I'm not prepared to say that I'm Jewish, I'm French. If I said that I was Jewish, Hitler would have won. He wouldn't, of course, deny that he came of a Jewish family, or that, or that if you like, that he'd been brought up in a particular way. But he saw, in terms of what Emily Rorty calls his essential identity, and what he saw as his essential identity, he was French. So that he reacted in a way, in the, in the opposite way to, to persecution and oppression. So there is no one simple answer to what keeps people Jewish, but I think sociologically, my, my impression is that one of the factors on the whole has been external pressures. N not only, of course, in terms of acting on people's uh, reactive psychology, but also in terms of not allowing them to do other things. In the whole of the sort of the Eastern Europe situation for, many, for a long time, Jews were simply not allowed to, to live in certain areas or to occupy certain professions and so on. But there's, it's a complex question. Right. Well, it, uh, my duty, my great pleasure to uh, wind us up now. Um, thank you, Stephen and Sarah. They were really interesting contributions. And most of all, uh, Alan, I take my hat off.